Good morning, everyone. Beautiful sunny day again. If this is global warming, we'll take it, eh? I'm still waiting for palm trees, but uh, I got to wait a little while, apparently. I want to thank you, uh, all of you, for your cards and support and letters and words of encouragement over the past uh, month. It's been it's been very good. Uh, moving into sort of a regular routine again, it's always encouraging to, to hear from you folks. Two weeks ago, my eyes were bigger than my stomach. Have you ever heard that phrase? I used to hear it a lot when I was a kid and there was stuffing and mashed potatoes and gravy. Because I'd keep the plate like this. And my mom would say, uh, I think your eyes are bigger than your stomach. I didn't understand that at first. I thought, man, I must have a small stomach. So without understanding, I just kept keeping food on, thinking that maybe that would fix it. Another phrase, uh, I bit off more than I could chew. Have you heard that phrase before, kids? Bite off more than you could chew. Yeah, I did both of those things. My eyes were bigger than my stomach, and I bit off more than I could chew. Every now and again, I forget that I have had a whole week or more to read and reread the text and study it and consider it from all sorts of angles, and you guys have about 40 minutes to do the same on Sunday morning. So in that sermon two weeks ago now, I touched on a pretty wide variety of large theological topics, each of which probably deserved its own sermon. We talked about the 50th day, Pentecost, during which the Jews celebrated harvest and the Feast of Booths and the beginning of their covenant relationship with Jehovah, God of Israel. From there, we talked about the covenant God made with Abraham in the middle chapters of Genesis and the Mosaic Covenant, which God made with Israel in the middle chapters of Exodus, and the New Covenant, which Christ established through his death and resurrection. We compared the Mosaic Covenant to a proposal of marriage from God to Israel, and in the middle of all this, we compared covenants of promise and covenants of law, and the tension between law and grace, and then we tied up the sermon speaking about the holiness of God and our responsibility as Christians before God because he is holy. Why didn't anyone stop me? You guys are much too polite. Somebody should have stood up, stood up and said, look, that's enough. Like We've had it. But you politely sat there until after the service when you came and talked to me. And many of you greeted me with gracious words like, uh, thank you for the message. That was sure a lot to take in. In other words, I had no idea what you're talking about. Or, or boy, I sure had trouble following you this time. I heard a lot of that. People are so kind. Yeah, no wonder. I listened to the message afterwards as I was preparing to post it on our church's podcast page, and I couldn't follow it either, and I wrote it. So I'm sorry, you guys. Uh, that's, there's my apology. Bless you all for your patient kindness. Let's try a little harder with today's message if we can. I, I really tried to narrow it down. 
Um, we'll try and be more clear and more succinct. And we're going to look at uh, Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 25. Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. This is the word of God. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in this room this morning, there are so many needs that we could not begin to name them all. And we are confronted this morning with the word of God, which alone has the power to meet those needs. And so I ask that as we read your word as we think about your word this morning that it would minister to our hearts that it would meet those needs that nothing else can meet and so we ask for your spirit to open our eyes and hearts to the words that you have written this morning in jesus name amen first few verses talk about the lord's presence on mount sinai we saw back in verse 9 of our previous message in Exodus that the Lord spoke so that all the people would hear his voice and therefore listen to Moses forever. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 33, as Moses is recounting this experience for the people of Israel, he asks them this question, did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and live? The answer, of course, is no. So what do we make of this? It is obviously a one-time event. There was nothing like it before, and there has been nothing like it since. That fact alone makes God's descent onto Mount Sinai an event worth considering. My hope is that this morning, as we reflect on this text, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will be drawn into worship of our great God 
and Savior, as well as being encouraged in our Christian walk. In light of this, I think there are two other key texts we will have to read this morning in order to get a more robust understanding of what's happening in this passage today. Those texts are going to be in Hebrews 12 and 1 Kings 18 and 19. We'll get there eventually. Before we do that, let's see what today's text in Exodus 19 says. It says that there are thunderings, lightnings, a thick cloud, and a trumpet. It was not as if the people were taken by surprise by these events. They were warned that these things would happen on the third day, and they were given time and instruction on how to prepare themselves to sanctify themselves, it's the word it uses, for being in the presence of the Lord. And yet, when the time came, they were terrified when they saw and heard what was taking place in front of them. Even Moses was afraid, as is revealed to us in Hebrews 12, verse 21. It says, And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. God is clearly making a statement to the people of Israel so that they would not forget this day. As the people are coming out of their tents on what would normally be another clear late spring day, they would see the mountain burning like a furnace, surrounded by a cloud with thick black smoke billowing thousands of feet into the sky. Lightning would be flashing, thunder would be booming, the ground beneath their feet would be shaking, and then a trumpet would sound, calling them to the mountain. I don't think anyone there would have forgotten that day. I find it interesting that the word Moses uses is here that is translated furnace is only used four times in the entire Bible, and it's only used by Moses. It's It's an Egyptian word. The idea is of a smelting furnace used for purifying metals, or the word comes from subduing metals. So it's you take an impure ore or some kind of metal, you put it in there, and you heat it and heat it and heat it so that the, the filth comes out of it. And that's the word that Moses is using here. It's the same word used to describe the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah when their smoke was rising to heaven when God judged those cities. The smoke from this type of furnace is the impurity rising up and out and leaving only pure metal behind. And it says that at the sound of the trumpet, the people were to go to the mountain. Moses had already instructed the people to build some kind of barrier around Mount Sinai. We don't know what it was. It's probably stones, rocks that they had found and built a barrier. I I don't know. And, And the people must not go or cross this barrier. And I think it might be helpful, it was to me anyway, to think of Mount Sinai as having three levels as you're reading this passage. At the top, there was the presence of the Lord enshrouded in cloud and smoke and lightning and thunder. At the bottom was the barrier around the mountain, outside of which the people were to gather on that third day. And between the barrier and the top was this middle ground 
where the Lord would sometimes allow the sanctified priests to come. This passage all the way through Exodus 19 has a lot of comings and goings up and down the mountain. And it can be confusing, but I think if you separate it into those three areas, it'll just help you understand better what's happening. Anyway, on the third day, when the loud trumpet blast was heard, Moses led the people up to the barrier at the base of Mount Sinai, where they could see, smell, and hear that the Lord's presence was descending and residing at the top of the mountain. In the next chapter, chapter 20, we get a little more detailed description of what the people were experiencing, as well as God's reason for manifesting himself in this way uniquely at that time. We'll just read verses 18 through 21 of chapter 20. It says this, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Why do we sin sometimes? Because we don't have enough fear of the Lord. Moses goes up Mount Sinai in verse 20. With all these things happening in front of the people of Israel, the voice of God then calls Moses and bids him to come up and meet with God at the top of the mountain. What jumped out at me about verse 20 of today's text is that it says that the Lord came down and Moses went up. There is no way for man to reach God, to ascend to where he dwells. It is only when God condescends to meet with man and he begins by first coming down. That is salvation in a nutshell. In opposition to all other religious systems. In every man-made religious system, man tries to initiate his relationship with God by first approaching God on his own strength. Perhaps he tries to reach God through a series of chants or meditation. Sometimes it is the keeping of a set of rules or a pilgrimage to a certain holy place. For others, it is through the use of mind-altering substances or, heaven forbid, self-mutilation. It can even be as subtle as the wearing of the correct garments or the veneration of holy relics. But the God of the Bible is in no way subject to the whims and imaginations of men. Because of his great love for us, he initiates communication with us by first coming down. And of course, he did this ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, who even came down and took on the flesh of his creation, that he might be the ladder up to the presence of God for all who would believe on him, John 1 
God gives Moses one, one more warning when Moses goes up on the mountain. Verses 21 through 25 tell us a strange conversation that God has with Moses. God, being able to see the hearts of men, tells Moses to go back down to the people one more time and warn them again to stay away. Moses reminds the Lord, as if the Lord had forgotten, that they had already built a barrier so that the people would know that they had to stay back. God responds to Moses, away, get down there and tell them. And when you come back, bring Aaron. There's a lot going on in this particular part of the text, so let's start unpacking it. God tells Moses to warn the people. As I just mentioned, God knew the hearts of the people gathered around Mount Sinai. Perhaps there were some there who were contemplating breaking through the barrier to try and get a glimpse of the Lord. I think that might have been the case, so that they had something to sculpt or create or worship, as was their pattern back in Egypt. But I don't know for sure. The text doesn't say. But now, for the first time, God warns the people what would happen if they broke through. Haras is the Hebrew word. To break through. Haras. If they would break through Haras, God would break out Paras against the people. In a certain sense, the barrier that Moses built around Mount Sinai was a visible picture for the people of the law, the Ten Commandments, that the people were about to receive. Their violation would mean certain death because God's perfect standard of holiness would have been violated. God, in his mercy and love, gives the people further warning. Don't break through. The price will be more than you are willing or even able to pay. I like one of the notes I read in the Geneva Study Bible about this passage. Neither dignity nor multitude have authority to pass the bounds that God's word prescribes. I don't care if you're the Queen of England or whether there's eight billion of you, if God's word draws a line and says, up to here and no further, that is the standard. There are several times in the Old Testament when it says that God breaks out among the people in his holy wrath. Perhaps one of the most memorable and troubling is Uzzah. You remember the story of Uzzah, even if I'm saying his name wrong? In this story, in the, in the days of King David, the Ark of the Covenant is being transported and being pulled by uh, several oxen and one of the drivers of the cart, his name is Uzzah. And the, for some reason, the oxen stumble and this man, Uzzah, he reaches out to steady the ark. And when he touches it with his hand, which was forbidden by God, the Lord breaks out, paras, against him and strikes him dead on the spot. We get a strong sense, maybe I should say, I get a strong sense from this story and others like it in the Old Testament that the holiness and the wrath of God are dwelling there just 
below the surface and could break out at any moment against the sinfulness of man. I think we need to understand this if we want to truly understand what a miraculous work Christ did on the cross, giving us access to a holy God through the blood of his sacrifice. Being in the presence of God should never be something we take lightly. We should enter and dwell in his presence with a deep sense of thankfulness for what Jesus has made possible. Moses brings Aaron with him up the mountain. God only allows two people to ascend the mount toward his holy presence here. Moses, the prophet, and Aaron, the priest. But this merely pointed forward when one greater than Moses would come with a better covenant, and one greater than Aaron would come with a better priesthood, as the book of Hebrews tells us. So we'll conclude today's message with two simple words. Be thankful. Be thankful. For some time now, I have been praying that God would give me a clear understanding of the grand, overarching story of the Bible. The Bible is a compilation of 66 separate books written by many, many different authors. We don't know how many, up to 40 different authors at various places across the Middle East over the course of 1,500 years. But the Bible is also the product of a single mind, the mind of God. From Genesis to Revelation, there is a grand narrative that God is laying out for all mankind. It is this great narrative that I long to understand. It is useful and interesting sometimes to go right down and look at the specific words God chose in certain places so that we can understand those small parts better and start to put them together. My parents are working on a puzzle at their house and it's been a chore. That puzzle, it, it's, it's been difficult. And what makes it especially difficult, two things. There's a lot of pieces, 1,200 and some. Secondly, the box is gone with the picture. Yeah. And you try and put this puzzle together and you haven't got the picture. Well, you have no idea whether the red piece goes here or there and the green. And, and you try and work it out and you try and work it out. But if we could have the picture of the whole thing, perhaps some of those pieces would start to fall into the places they belong. And I felt as though, I, I, you know me, felt. Good gracious, felt. I've had a sense <laughs> that I need to understand that picture to better understand these small parts of it. That's been my challenge to myself lately. <clears throat> anyway, where were we? The Bible is a product of a single mind. God has a grand picture. And the only way we can see it is through his word. We can't see it through thinking really hard or being really smart. 
From Genesis to Revelation, there's this huge story that God is laying out for us. And it's that story I want to understand. So if you'll indulge me, I'd like to conclude today's message by presenting today's story from Exodus 19 into God's great narrative of the ages. The whole idea at Sinai was exclusion. Everything that happens at Mount Sinai loudly proclaims, stay away because God is holy. From the great display of power at the mountaintop to the barrier built around the base, it all says, stay away, keep back. You have no business with a holy God. It is easy to think that if you and I would have been there, we would have been inspired to live a holy lifestyle after that incredible display of power. But that's pretty easy to say in hindsight, isn't it? So when did things change? We don't see these displays of power by God anymore. We might think that if God descended on Sinket Mountain, just out the window here, the way he descended on Mount Sinai in the days of old, that would be enough to persuade the people of Vanderhoof that God is real, that he is powerful, that he is holy, and we ought to submit ourselves to him. But if we think that, we would be dead wrong. Like the people of Israel, within two months, we would be asking for a golden calf to worship because awe is no substitute for the submission of the will in faith to the Lord. So there is, maybe I should ask the question, is there an instance in scripture where God teaches us that he is moving man toward knowing a better way? I think there is, and I think it can be found in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19, one of the most memorable stories in all the Old Testament. We don't have time to read the whole account, but let me give you the story in my own words, and then we'll read the end of the matter in 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12. So God raises up a prophet in the midst of the successive reigns of many evil kings in Israel, and the prophet's name is Elijah. And the king at that time was King Ahab, whose wife was Jezebel. God sends Elijah to King Ahab with a message that God is going to cause a drought on the land for many years. Needless to say, Ahab isn't very pleased, and Elijah flees from him and eventually takes up residence with a widow and her son who are on the verge of death due to the drought. <clears throat> but God miraculously saves the widow and her son because they give Elijah food, drink, and a place to live. At one point, Elijah even raises the widow's son from the dead. After three years of drought, God sends Elijah back to Ahab with a message that God is going to cause it to rain by the word of his prophet. When Elijah meets with Ahab, he explains to him that the drought was due to Ahab's idolatry. And he tells Ahab to meet him on Mount Carmel with all the false prophets of the false god Baal. On Mount Carmel, in front of all the people, 
Elijah challenges the false prophets to call on their false god to rain down fire from heaven and burnt and, and burn up a bull offering placed on one of their altars. Well, they spend the entire morning going through a long, wild ceremony and nothing happens. Meanwhile, Elijah is standing there mocking them and their God for their weakness. Then Elijah repairs an altar of stones that is there. He places an offering, also a bull, on that altar and he proceeds to pour gallons and gallons and gallons of water over the altar and the sacrifice. Then Elijah prays, fire comes down from heaven and burns up the offering, the water, the stones, and everything there. So at this point, the people fall down on their faces before God and cry out, the Lord, he is God. Elijah then commands the execution of all the prophets of Baal, the false god, <clears throat> and tells Ahab, <clears throat> pardon me, that rain is on its way. <clears throat> when Jezebel hears of all that Elijah has done, she sends a message to him saying that she is going to slay him as he slayed the false prophets. So Elijah runs for his life, <clears throat> heading south. He travels for 40 days and nights until he reaches Horeb. That's right, he comes to the same mountain we read about in Exodus 19, Mount Sinai. And he goes into a cave there and he spends the night. <clears throat> in the morning, the Lord comes to Elijah and asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah in despair claims that he is the only true prophet of God left because Ahab and Jezebel have killed all the others, and now they are looking to kill him too. So let's conclude the matter by reading 1 Kings 19, 11 and 12. Then God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Many of us feel today that we need to get more of the thunder and the fire and the trembling of Mount Sinai into people as a way of keeping them from sin, as a way of inspiring them toward holy living. Yet we know from this story and from story after story in the Old Testament that these great displays of power have no lasting effect on the hearts of people. Awe is one thing. The submission of the will is another. Elijah was looking for another great display of God's power to turn the hearts of Israel back to the Lord. He truly believed that his great confrontation with the prophets of Baal back at Mount Carmel would turn all Israel back to righteousness, including the king and the queen. And he was sorely disappointed. Immediately after that great victory, 
Queen Jezebel vows to execute Elijah, and he realizes, I'm sure, with a very discouraged heart, that very little, if anything, has changed. I think this is why he ended up back at Mount Sinai. Whether by his own volition or the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Bible doesn't say, Elijah knew the stories of God's awesome presence there at Mount Sinai, which we read about in today's text from Exodus 19. There was thunder and lightning and cloud and blackness and smoke and great noise and the voice of God thundering out for all to hear. And this is where God teaches Elijah where true power abides. True power abides in the word of God, in the still, small voice. The wind of God can break the rocks of the mountain, but the word of God can break the rock of a man's heart. From Elijah's story forward, we never again hear of God displaying his almighty power for the nations to see. When we look at the lives of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Obadiah and Micah and Jonah and all the other prophets, it is the word of God that is proclaimed. And of course, at the end of it all, we get the ultimate still small voice, that of Jesus himself born in a manger to poor parents in an out-of-the-way place in a backwoods country in the Middle East, announced only to a few lowly shepherds, God transforms the whole world through the simple but immeasurably powerful words of the prophet, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Later on in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, we read this. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched. Mount Sinai. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or, pardon me, shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. You have not come to that mountain. But you have come to Mount Zion. 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That's where you have come. We don't come to Zion as if we were coming to Sinai. Unlike Sinai, which bellowed out, stay away. Listen to the words of Christ in contrast to that. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Later on, let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And a little later, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Near the end of his earthly ministry, at what Christians have historically called the Transfiguration, Jesus is joined at the top of another mountain with both Moses and Elijah there. When Peter suggests that they should recognize the importance of all three of these men, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, a voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved son. Hear him. The awesome power of God displayed through these other two prophets culminates in the word made flesh, Jesus, the son of God. His still small voice is the power which created the universe out of nothing. And it can create life within every person that hears him and trusts him for salvation. Several centuries ago, a theologian named Adam Clark wrote the following in his commentary on this passage. I'll read it and then we'll close in prayer. Reader, art thou still under the influence and condemning power of that fiery law which proceeded from his right hand? Art thou yet afar off? Remember, thou canst only come nigh by the blood of sprinkling. And till justified by his blood, thou art under the curse. Consider the terrible majesty of God. If thou have his favor, thou hast life. If his frown, death. Be instantly reconciled to God. For though thou hast sinned deeply, and he is just, yet he is the justifier of him that believeth in Christ Jesus. Believe on him. Receive his salvation. Obey his voice indeed, and keep his covenant. And then shalt thou be a king and a priest unto God and the Lamb, and be finally saved with all the power of an endless life. Amen. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, as weak people, we sometimes think that some majestic and powerful display would transform our hearts or the hearts of our culture. And we learn in our passage today that those powerful displays do not transform the way your word transforms. That it is your still small voice that has the true power to transform the hearts of men. And so we ask this morning as we look into your word that it would be a still small voice to us. That it would have the power to break the rocks of our hearts and cause us to live in obedience to Jesus Christ, to walk with him in truth, to trust him for every moment that is coming. Thank you that you have not left us without a path, that you have given us your word, that you have given us this grand picture so that as these puzzle pieces are presented to us, those that spend time seeking seeking your mind, seeking your face, can understand the grand picture better and understand where those puzzle pieces can fit. Help us to be a people that don't look way out into the hopeless future, but that look hopefully at just the moments ahead of us, that we are Christians who live in the light of hope, that walk in the light of hope and the truth of your word. As we go from this place, I pray that you bless each one in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.